stop and take a trip down on my block where you see hidden potential young minds sharper than pencil and ain't afraid to speak their mind if they got something against you we standing with you we tackle issues like civic pride hate will cease to exist let's put our differences aside from my side to your side from dutch town to south side from penrose to north side from benton park to old north to west end the west side we bless when we step out we stand down rise up stand together wise up this is stitch cast studio produced by st louis story stitchers in st louis missouri Welcome to another edition of Stitchcast Studio, featuring a very heartfelt discussion. This discussion will be about the Ukrainian war with Russia, featuring our very special guest, V. Theodayo, whose family were refugees during the Vietnam War. Check it out. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches. Story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches. Hello, everybody. Under the sound of my voice, I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Stitchcast Studio. I'm your host, Brandon Lewis, and I am accompanied by a few members of our stitch cast now we have a special guest with us we're going to talk about a pretty um we're going to talk about some serious heavy topics uh and we got a special guest with us we were fortunate enough to get v with us and yes i, I have read your bio i know about you but I, I i don't think i could introduce you as well as you could introduce yourself so first of all thank you so much for being with us and tell us a little bit about yourself thank you for having me here of course um just a little bit about me. Uh, I came here as a refugee um, in the early 90s. Uh, I've been in St. Louis for the most part of my life. And then I uh, went out to uh, the Bay Area for a little while and I met my husband and brought him back here. And we've been back here since uh, for the last decade or so. Wow. So how did he get you to, uh, how did, how did you get him to, to leave the warm weather? I coerced him, you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> I tricked <laughs> him actually. He, he loved real estate. So, uh, so I, I, I tell him about, you know, prices here in, in, oh, yeah. in St. Louis and that, <laughs> oh, that, that did the trick. That, that yeah. get you. That get yeah. you. Yeah. I, I tell people it's really about love, you know, but yeah, definitely. we all know it's really love for It's for estate. profit. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Alrighty, alrighty. So uh before we get into the uh heavy stuff, what was what was uh first of all, how are you liking St. Louis? You you've been here your like like a lot of your life, so you must like it. Yeah, St. Louis is uh it's great. Um it's challenging at times. Uh, when when I first came here, we were one of the few uh, Vietnamese people that settled here, and uh, there weren't a lot of Asian. And then later in the um, the second half of the '90s, more and more Asians start migrating over, and um, so it, it was really difficult to adjust because I didn't know how to be you know, American, mm -hmm. and I didn't know how to preserve my Vietnamese. Yeah. So um, when I moved out to the Bay Area, that's when I saw a lot of Asian Americans. And then I realized the struggle that I went through was not really unique to my own. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting about St. Louis and diversity in St. Louis. And I think diversity in St. Louis have grown quite a bit. So it's nice to see. Um, but I think there's still more to go. And I think like the work that you guys are doing are bringing out some of that diversity 
and, and different perspectives, different voices, and that's really cool. Thank you, thank you. Yes, we're uh, definitely, uh, we're definitely trying to. Beauty comes in all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds. So uh, before we, um, there are a lot of uh, seemingly separate crises, crises, crises happening in uh, Ukraine. But uh, one of the biggest crises happening is the refugee situation there. So could you talk a little bit about what life was like for you as a refugee? Yeah, um, it was it was hard. So. It was interesting. I had this conversation with my daughter last night, and um, she's going to coding school, and 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 she's doing these extracurricular activities in her class. And I'm like, oh my gosh, when I was your age, I didn't have any of that. Um, I have rocks in the back. <laughs> that, Here you go. Like here's the backyard. Go. <laughs> um, yeah, so when, when I first came here, I didn't have the language. My parents didn't have any money. We rely so much on the International Institute mm -hmm. to help uh, give us like those first couple free uh, rents, um, those first few months. They help us find jobs uh, for my parents. They're working minimum wages. Um, I was nine and my sister was six and three years old and we all stayed at home unsupervised. I washed them, <laughs> I cooked, I fed them, all that stuff. So um, it, it was it was difficult. And and today, you know, we we own some real estate in South City. Beautiful. And um, and a lot of our tenants are refugees as well. Mm -hmm. So recently, we have um, um, what's the the most recent uh, refugee. Um, Syrians, mm -hmm. and um, in one unit we have, there were like eight, nine kids in the house, and we came in to to make a little repair, and there were like literally like eight, nine kids watching, you know, seven, six other kids mm -hmm. in the same wow. house, and there was an infant, and we're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And when you see the image, it's just like, it brings tears to your eyes because they can't like, it's just kids watching kids, but there's no other option for them, you know? Yeah. And it just made me think of when we first came here, what we had to do to survive. Wow, wow. So um, for the audience who may not completely be up to date, um, a few quotes that we have from a few articles covering the refugee crisis in Ukraine. Europe, this is Europe's biggest refugee crisis since World War II. Uh, two million have fled to European unions uh, after less than two weeks of the, of the invasion. Uh, Poland is running out of beds and uh, they quoted a statistic of about two Ukrainians, two Ukrainians entering Poland every three seconds. So uh, this is, um, this is this isn't this isn't mild. This is a uh, this is definitely a huge deal. Uh, I did watch a few of the videos of refugees, and uh, it's hard not to get emo emotional about what you see. So, uh, if you could, um, given your history, what would you say to refugees that are currently going through uh, things similar to what you went through and overcame? Just hang in there. It's it's hard. 
you you lose everything, um, everything that you know, everything that you're familiar with, and you start over. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but just hang in there. And really, I ask is that um, everyone welcome in refugees and immigrants, really, because actually there's more uplifting statistics <laughs> that um, cities that have a lot of immigrants and refugees and stuff like that are cities that thrive and grow mm -hmm. the fastest. Mm -hmm. So New York, California, um, those are some of the cities. So I'm excited. I hope St. Louis get a lot of refugees coming in. Um, I think it will lift the city up. This is like more of an add-on than a statement itself, but I will say that it is interesting talking about, because this is a humanitarian crisis. We have women, children being killed. We have bombs being dropped on places that should be considered safe, should be considered sacred, untouchable, like maternity wards, hospitals, apartment buildings, uh, places where you should be considered safe and at home. So I'd say that this is a humanitarian crisis, but what I guess you can say concerns me is how we're treating this crisis of refugees, of immigration, than we've treated previous ones. Uh, you are Vietnamese, your, your parents came from Vietnam. But we can talk about just the history of how, what, I don't want to phrase this in a negative way. I will say that a question can be asked is what makes this crisis all the more important than the previous crisis that we've had, the, the previous immigration, the previous refugees that have been made from war-torn countries, and why are we humanizing this one? What is the, the kicker for this? I, I could say that we demonize Syrian and Middle Eastern refugees. We threw people in camps in the 60s during World War II because they looked like the enemy. And they were refugees in their own homes. They were escaping the same violence that we thought was being perpetrated against us. Uh, and I think that question should be asked is, what what is so important about this one? And if we are willing to offer million dollar packages, offer military support, uh, even consider like supporting them going in there to assist them, the question could be asked, why aren't we doing it with other ones? And should we be doing it with other ones as well? Wow, um, that is a really good question. That's a really good, that's a um, really good thing to point out. Uh, does anybody else want to speak on that? Um, what you said, it kind of made me think about um, what happened in Afghanistan and the, I think, was it the Taliban or something like that? And they entered, and it's like now nobody even heard about it. Like, Biden, he doesn't, I don't know if he wants to help, but it's like all this intention came to Russia and Ukraine. And I also believe, because it's like social media kind of contributes it to a lot, because I didn't even hear about it on the news. I heard about it on the Shade Room on Instagram and, like, on Twitter and things like that. And it's also, like, the discrimination between, like, um, like Europeans versus like um, like places in Afghanistan or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. of color. So I feel like that's also a contribution uh, to like why people they pay more attention to this one. Definitely, yeah. I think I think uh, the idealistic part of me wants to say that we've just evolved as people, that that we've just grown as people. 
but uh, it would probably be foolish to not acknowledge that um, that uh, Poland is a is a European country. Yeah. You know, so um, that does uh, change things a little bit, at, le- at least subconsciously. At least subconsciously, especially in a uh, especially to a Western society, um, 100%. So yeah, I would love to think that we we've just grown as people and we just know better. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, no, yeah. that, that 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 would probably be overly uh, idealistic and optimistic. Uh, optimistic and, yeah, I will say that you touched on media, mm-hmm. and I think this is uh, something I think that we're starting to analyze now. It's just keywords that people are using when describing the situation between Russia and Ukraine and how they reference refugees rather than they reference refugees from other countries. They're like, mm-hmm. these are people that look like us. They're, they're innocent, they're, mm-hmm. they're, yeah. they're, they're bystanders. Definitely. So are the people from the Middle East. So right. are the people yeah. from these Asian countries that are often going through civil, civil uh, conflicts that we just aren't talking about. Media coverage doesn't handle it the same way that we do Eurocentric countries and yeah. people that, I'll say we can get something out of, I feel like, our media is very much tied to, in my opinion, very imperialistic ideals. Uh, and we feel like, because what, 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 no matter what you look at it, we get something from the situation in Ukraine. And I think that could be said as to why we're assisting Ukraine and why a lot of UN countries are assisting Ukraine, but they don't assist countries that they can't get something out of that. Yeah. They're just getting people lost, confused, terrified who just had their homes destroyed. There's there's no profit in that. Mm-hmm. But there's profit in this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I will say, well, I guess I, I don't know what they're saying in Africa about this situation. I don't know what they're saying in uh, different parts of Asia about this situation. But one thing that does at least feel different about this is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of people that agree with what Russia's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, Russia is a European country too. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of people on uh, Putin's side with this one. Uh, I think I read uh, last week that even uh, even the president of China is trying to sway Putin in another direction. Yeah. Uh, and so that definitely does feel different. But there is something that's, uh, I guess, disarming or should be disarming when you when you see somebody that looks like yourself. Uh, and being that uh, being that uh, the majority of this country are descendants of somewhere in Europe, you know that, that there's just something uh, disarming, disarming. You 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 know uh, when when uh, uh, man, I, I don't want to <laughs> misquote it, but there was a there was a group. Never mind, because I, I can't remember who the group was, so I don't I don't want to uh, I don't want to leave uh, give bad uh, bad information on it. Yeah. But uh, let's get into some of the some of the difficult questions. What 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 is the ideal outcome of uh, this situation uh, at, at the point that it's at right now? Um, I wanted to like touch like one more thing where I kind of we pay more attention. I feel like gas prices. Why? Because I feel like. They said like Four Russia and gallon, Ukraine. Y'all. Yeah, I had to go there. With the gas prices. Uh, Russia yeah, and Ukraine most, uh, most and things like that. And I feel like more people pay attention to it because it's like ever since that, like they say they contribute to lots of gas prices. So I feel like a lot of people that drive cars 
ever since the stuff that happened with Russia and Ukraine, they pay more attention to it because like the gas was really high. So definitely, like that. that does make a good point. Also, a more uh, touching point that we aren't really talking about is that that thin veil of is it affecting us or is it not? Because we often disassociate ourselves from conflicts in other parts of the world. In our heads, we call them third world countries. We call them not our problems. It's it's their own. We're like it's right. we're, we're keeping away from it. It's their problem. But once it starts to affect us, then that more privileged, more self-righteous idealisms come out where we're like, oh, we need to get in there because it's affecting our gas prices. Right. It's four bucks a gallon. We need to stop the Russian and Ukraine conflict. But we're not doing that with other countries. But I think that that is something that we can touch on later is that thin veil that exists. Of, it involves us and it doesn't. But back to your Definitely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so outside of gas prices, do we feel that this is affecting us in, a, in any sort of direct way or, or is it more so indirectly? Like gas prices, that's that's like the main thing that people quote. That's the main, you, you know, yeah, and I get, I get it. I, I drive, I drive a truck. It costed $50 to fill the that Ford up with 40 gas prices, you know what I'm saying? So, so, so yeah, I definitely get it. But um, outside of the gas prices, what what ways are we seeing this uh, affect us? And I'm not saying uh, what way do you see, like, I look at that and I see it. I mean, what way can you, what way would you, like, foreshadow this happening or however you interpret that question? How do, how do we see this affecting us? I think it sets a precedent, precedent mm -hmm. to how desensitized will become to war, to violence, because slowly but surely this is becoming at least in the eyes of media in the eyes of us as humans it's becoming less and less of humanitarian conflict and more of it's an economic conflict we're becoming less and less in touch with what genuine atrocities are and the atrocities that are being committed i think that uh while this is no offense to you the first thing we talked about was gas prices and not women and children dying not right. people yeah. leaving being forced from their homes we're becoming desensitize and I think that that's one of at least in my mind the most negative outcome is I think that to answer the original question the most my outcome that I see happening is Russia wins we can't do much in it in a diplomatic legal standpoint because of all these things that systems that we build up to prevent you know humanitarian aid uh, I think that the worst but also the most realistic outcome is Russia wins, Ukraine is absorbed back into what Putin wants to be the USSR, and we become desensitized to the conflict. We're like, oh, Russia won, let's pack it up, let's get back to what we were doing. Gotcha. I think that that's, that's what I see in the future, and I think that that's uh, something that is affecting us, especially in the US, is how desensitized are we gonna become? Wow. Do you think there's also fear that Russia could start slowly attacking other country nearby and then eventually, you know, expand its ambition. That's yeah, that's a that's uh, I, I think I told you about that that when we were doing the research for this, that that is the end game. A lot of people don't want to admit this to themselves is that is Putin's end game. Putin was in the KGB, he's an old uh, byproduct of the USSR and Soviet Russia. That's that's if, if, we, if we're being brutally honest here, that is what he wants. That, that is the goal of getting Ukraine back into Russian control is establishing the USSR. And if he doesn't stop here in a, what is a democratically elected peaceful country that has actually it made a deal with Russia long ago 
to denuclearize. Yeah. And that deal was, is that we do nu- denuclearize, you do not invade. And we're seeing now that they're very ignorant of their treaties and the promises they made. So a good question could be asked is when is it going to stop? And is it going to stop? You know, uh, that's, a, that's a good point to bring up because Ukraine isn't the only country that left the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So, so if he is trying to restore uh, the Soviet Union, why would it stop in Ukraine? Uh, and um, I did actually uh, write a few of these now. Uh, Putin did make uh, conditions for uh, ending the war. Uh, in order to in order to end the war, uh, Putin says Ukraine must recognize Crimea as Russian. Uh, Ukraine must recognize Russian control separatist movement. Uh, Ukraine must change constitution to formally renounce ambitions to join NATO. Um, <laughs> kind of sound like you still want to be controlled by Russia. There was this very uh, informative uh, piece. I don't I don't know where, so I take a grain of salt. I do not know where it came from, but it made something, you know, like brutally clear. Like if they said like, hey, we just, if Ukraine says right now that we will not join NATO, it kind of, it, it forces Putin to the light of, it's not about, it was never really about them rejoining NATO. It's, he wants... If, he, if, if they agree to the terms and conditions, it is projected that he'll just continue anyway because we've been having these high-stakes meetings. I think we had one in Poland recently of uh, a summit between Russian and Ukrainian leaders, and they still haven't come to any consensus, to, to no agreement, to no ceasefire, nothing, like no progress at all. And I think that that's starting to show that, at least in my opinion, these, these were never terms and conditions. These are just, it's a way to put the blame on Ukraine. Like, oh, you want to stop the war so bad? Just do these things. Do what I want you to yeah, do. Yeah, do, do what I want you to do. And even if you do those things, we, we, we're just going to get more power because you agreed to these terms and conditions. Now, you, you touched on uh, setting precedents uh, earlier. Uh, what type of, uh, let, let's say, let's say uh, NATO stays uninvolved or whatever the case may be, uh, Russia wins. Uh, I, I don't know how many people are actually expecting uh, Ukraine to beat Russia at war. Uh, they, they are taking casualties. Russia is losing generals, top generals. Um, but I don't know how many, uh, how many people are actually expecting Ukraine to win on their own. So... What type of precedent does this set? Do we do we feel like this threatens democracy? Um, uh, uh, if there is no retaliation, uh, does that tell Putin, okay, I could do this, I could I could continue to do this? And do we think that uh, the war crimes committed, such as uh, Putin taking a nuclear plant by fire, which is a war crime, you can't do that. Um, do we think that he'll get tried for these crimes and punished? Uh, what what do we expect? I don't want to get like too philosophical and deep here, but something I've been asking myself a lot is what I think is the most important thing being attacked in this conflict is the idea of freedom and hope. Uh, Ukraine is, I'll give them this, it is, it was founded the, uh, on the idea of freedom and hope. Uh, people who were abused and neglect, neglected by Russia and the USSR who formed their own place, uh, democratically elected, in the ideals of freedom. And I think that that's why they're getting attacked. It's, it's a show of force. And I think that something that I, I'm i very admirable of Ukrainian people is, is their hope, is their, is their fire. Uh, they're making these urban legends, the ghost of Kiviv, the, the, I don't know if you guys have been seeing on Instagram that, that jet fighter 
that has been just wrecking shop on Russian air supply lines. And it's like, it's all over Instagram, all over Twitter. People are making TikToks about it, just praising this person. Supposedly a Ukrainian jet pilot who's just just been going out and taking care of the skies in the Ukrainian capital. And I think that these these legends that they're making, these these stories, it's 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 hope that that they can win, that they they can do this. That even if they lose, they're not going to go down not fighting. Uh, yeah. Their leader is still actively in their capital to this day. He is, yeah. And he, he and he had the chance to leave. He had the, the United chance. States to leave. offered to to retrieve him to bring him out, and he said, "No, I don't. I don't need a plane. I need guns. I need bullets." So and yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that this is a good example of their. That is one ideal I think that the Ukrainian people will not let die, even if they do. That the idealisms of freedom within them will be there after they die because of this show that they're they're putting on. Because I think that some Ukrainian people, if not most, know that this conflict is unwinnable in the traditional conservative sense of winning a war. But it keeps hope going, knowing that we we stood up, we we didn't stop fighting until we absolutely could not fight anymore. And I think that no matter how the conflict ends, the survivors and the people that come after, the descendants, the history books will show that they, they're they fighting, they're showing off hope. And if they can keep on doing that, then Russia will never truly win. But I feel like at the same time, if Russia did win and get away with all of the war crime and everything, it it kind of paved the way for China and other countries that have high ambitions. Um, I speak from, you know, from my own experience of Vietnam and, and the constant war and the constant conflict between us and China. Um, you know, like China always want to take over Vietnam at some point. Um, we have like a thousand years of history fighting back and forth, back and forth. And what is to stop them from taking back Vietnam again? Um, or Taiwan, you know, um, to say. Yeah. So there's just a, it's scary um, to think that if you're big enough, you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And I think that's the the message that they're trying to to send out. And and I think that message is is very scary. Yeah, and, and that that's what I wanted to get into when I uh, initially asked about precedents. Uh, I know some of us are skeptical about whether or not Putin will get tried and uh, if so convicted of war crimes. What type of message does this send to other ambitious? countries if, if if you can commit war crimes and and there be no no sort of re- repercussion why why would why would anybody follow the laws of war in the first place mm-hmm. right so 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 where do we where do we uh see this going um there are uh people that agree with putin and and see what's happening as some form of liberation um while a lot of uh, Russian citizens don't agree with what's going on. And uh, they're even being uh, uh, jailed and punished for things like protesting. 
things that 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 people in America are very familiar with. You you know, as angry as we get about the things that we protest for, uh, imagine being jailed for it. That's not to say that no one's ever been jailed in America for protesting, but that's happening now in 2022 over there in Russia. So, um, I asked this earlier, but I don't think it got a got a definite answer with where things are now. What would be the ideal ending of something like this? Like in the perfect world, how would this end? Ukraine agrees to Russian terms and conditions. They come to a ceasefire and Russia takes Ukraine in the most legal, legal way that they can. That's, that's yeah. the best outcome as of now because without definitive UN support, UN saying like, we support Ukraine, we will be there in Ukraine with you guys, with the full power that we have, Ukraine just won't hold. It will, Russia will take it one way or another. They've shown that they are, they've found legal loopholes that they do not abide by our sacred laws, the Geneva Conventions, just basic human like idealisms. They, they just sidestepped it. So I think that the best outcome is them coming to an agreement where they can take it legally. What, what, what about y'all? What do you, what do you, how does this end ideally to you? I think a big thing is just like, this doesn't expand, but like get worse at this point. Cause it already is like a horrific situation. So like, I can't imagine that like now all bets are off. We all can like throw nukes around freely and stuff like that. Or I'm, you know, what happens if like this just expands and gets into something worse? Like, I think the most ideal thing would just be like, this is where it ends. And like, yeah. there's no more of this mess. <laughs> hey, everybody, you know what time it is. It's time for our Pick the City Up art interlude featuring our youth guitarist, Alexis Burt. Check it out. defensive alliance and that we don't we don't want war with Russia but if Russia was to invade any inch of uh, NATO territory that they would respond um, fully with war uh, do we how, how do how do y'all feel but do, do y'all think that uh, NATO uh, including America should get involved or you or do you think that uh, or do you think that uh, everyone should just stay out of it I think the the current course of action is is the right course of action. Um, 
I feel like the, the really the whole world kind of united on um, attacking Russia on the financial front. Mm -hmm. So ideally, mm -hmm. in like if I have my way, that like all of our financial pressures, all mm -hmm. of the major firms, mm -hmm. everybody is taking and, and are willing to take a financial hit. Our economy have taken a hit from this. Mm -hmm. But as we all take a hit and, and fight Russia on the economic front, mm -hmm. and that economic pressure can add additional pressure to you know, the residents of Russia, and really what we need is the people of Russia, like mm -hmm. to stand up mm -hmm. against their government yeah. and, and demand the stop of this madness. And I think that would be ideally, like just for Russia and the people of Russia, how can we appeal to everybody in Russia to say, help us stop this? And they can actually have the, the, the power to maybe like maybe a couple thousand might not work, right. but millions and millions of Russians standing up might work, mm -hmm. you know? And I think demonstrations and the power of nonviolence and, and ideally that would be my outcome that I would like to see. That, um, that uh, reminds me of how crazy, it, uh, how crazy and how chaotic everything is there there have been reports of russian soldiers sabotaging their own tanks because many many troops did not know that they were going to ukraine to do what they were doing uh, a lot of troops were told that they were passing through ukraine to go somewhere else i had no idea that that, that that's what they were doing so if if uh, a leader finds it necessary to tell such a such a um blatant lie to, to, to his troops, uh, one has to wonder what he's telling to his citizens. And what the, what does Russian citizens feel about what we're, because from their perspective, we're a naive, arrogant country from the West imposing economic sanctions on them and they're feeling it. And that is the scariest part of censorship and of having complete control over what your citizens see and hear is that they're not seeing and hearing the things on the front lines. They're seeing a heavily distorted, heavily filtered, and heavily censored version of the truth. And and with that being said, do we see the danger of, or, or do we see a potential danger of, of what Russia is now spreading throughout more of Europe? I'd say not Russia specifically, but other countries could pick up on this. I think it wouldn't be too far-fetched to say that a country like China could be like, oh, Putin did this thing. It's it's working. Let's let's go back to Vietnam. Let's let's try it again, but without or with ignoring the the guidelines that have been set, the Geneva Conventions, basic human sympathy and empathy. It's it, again. It leads into the precedent that this says: if it's not Russia, it might be another country. It might even be us next time. Yeah. Wow. In war, like a lot of hard decisions get made if uh if you guys were uh and this is pure speculation but if you guys were the president of of, of the united states how, what what decisions would you make what would you tell your country well how, how would you go about being president during a time like this um like for me america like they have a lot of resources to help them like there's a lot of people that's on social media or people in real life 
oh, that's not our business, da 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 I mean, it kind of is, because it's, like, affecting everybody. Like, it's affecting us now economically. So it's like, America, we do have a lot of resources to help them, whether it's, like, more weapons, just things like that. I feel like we sh if I was president, I would help them. Because I like helping people in general. So it's like people unfortunate in Ukraine, you can offer them refugees here instead of just Poland and things like that. So I will like help them as much as I can. Uh, v spoke earlier about the world kind of uniting and people are uh, kind of attacking uh, and fighting back in their own ways, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, whether it be Elon Musk sending servers to uh, to Ukraine or or Facebook and all of these other global conglomerates cutting ties, cutting ties with uh, with Ukraine, all these different businesses and manufacturers to hurt their economy. So I don't know if I would call it beautiful, but I guess that is one of the, uh, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's nice to see people that, that aren't in war trying to, uh, you know, trying to help out. I know one of the things that America and I think NATO in general is worried about is kind of provoking another world war. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's part of why they didn't want to uh, make Ukraine a no-fly zone because that that could be interpreted as direct provocation. Uh, and and they're, uh, I think America is trying to uh, do what they can to help without putting troops on the ground because that, that's also kind of inviting uh, world war. Which, so, so, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really rough situation. It's, it's kind of hard to know what to do and what not to do. Uh, Josh, what you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I would do <laughs> in that position personally. I feel you. I feel you. Because, I mean, as you said, like, you throw troops, that's going to send a precedent or have intentions. And what's interesting is, like, on my feed, I've heard, like, variety of opinions about how to respond from multiple different types of people that would, like, agree and disagree on other issues like this seems to be one that's very divided like has a lot of reactions and i just kind of look at it like i don't know what i do in that position like <laughs> you know because you sent you try to help and then that could possibly like make it worse and yeah. make the situation more um uncontrollable and like you try to uh, you don't help then that could be like seen the wrong way or right. misinterpreted like I just think it's kind of an awkward situation to be in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely, 100%. And I, I have no problem saying that. The, I mean, there are several situations where I'm glad I'm not the person making the decisions. <laughs> yeah. Because my goodness, my goodness. Oh, um, yeah, I don't know what particularly... If, if, I, if I was president, I would probably publicly thank the people who aren't troops, that are, but, but are powerful people, for the things that they're doing to help you know, the surrounding country, the country surrounding uh, Ukraine, I would thank them for taking refugees. Uh, I would thank Elon Musk for sending the servers and, and, and everybody else that's taking stands to uh, help in ways that 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 are kind of indirect so that we're not at least being the provokers of a world war. Now, um, NATO seems to be making it very, very clear. It's, it's, it's all... I don't, I don't, I don't want to speculate too hard, but it's almost kind of like they like uh, touch, touch NATO land though, touch NATO land. Do it. I dare you. I dare you. Do it. Yeah, yeah do I it. dare you. Do I dare you. Do it. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. That it kind, it kind of feels that way when I listen to them talking. But um, I would definitely uh, kind of 
highlight the people that are taking stands and the ways that they can take stands in hopes that it would inspire others to do the same. Because uh, like you said, ideally, I think that, um, you, you know, just as a civilization, we kind of need each other. You know what I'm saying? Trade and all of that, that, that stuff is important. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so um, I, I agree with you. I think ideally, the, the pressures that are being put on Russia would be enough for them to stop. And uh, not just that, but ideally, I think uh, Putin would be tried for war crimes because he committed war crimes. And if we want war crimes to not be committed in the future, then we should probably punish those that are that are, that are, that are doing war crimes. Like war is bad enough. You know, you know how bad you gotta be to commit a crime in war. Like 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 it's war, where where people are literally killing each other, and that's not a crime. So 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 imagine how how heinous of something something must be to actually be to, for for them to say yeah even if you're in war don't do these things you know and they're still being done so um yeah I think it would set a very dangerous precedent to not do anything about those war crimes being committed because then nobody else has any incentive incentive to not commit war crimes themselves we can't just hope everybody a good person you know so we we can't just hope that everybody's as idealistic as we think we are. I'm more of a statement than a question, but I feel like people can tack on their own beliefs about this. I believe that we are going on a very dangerous course. Uh, you brought it up when you were talking about how, like, we're, we need to try Putin, Putin because he's committing these crimes in war where people kill each other, and yet killing itself isn't the crime in war the act of killing another human being, the act of snuffing out somebody's life, somebody's story, in like a matter of seconds, that that isn't enough to warrant a trial. I think that what I want to encourage viewers to do is to t take this as much as any, because there are children being massacred right now. Children, like again, the story of the maternity ward, children who just got brought into this beautiful world their light being snuffed out in a matter of seconds. They didn't even see it coming. They didn't even feel it coming. Just gone like that. Uh, I'd encourage our listeners to value the importance of life and what it is to live while you can and to be graced with the knowledge that you are not in that situation. No matter what you believe in, that there is there is this inherent thing where you are lucky to not be in that situation. If you're listening to this the same way we are recording this, you can sit down on your iPhone 13, plug in your AirPods and say, I'm listening to a podcast and I'm not out there living it. So I just want to encourage our audience to acknowledge their privilege, their importance, and to not become desensitized to, to this, this violence, to this death, because whether it's in movies, games, whatever we're doing, we often see death as just something that happens, but we don't feel. And I think that you don't want, you shouldn't let it consume you, but to acknowledge that these are people just like me and you living our own stories who think that they are the main character of their own story, that they're living this life, that their beautiful souls are being just snuffed out. Acknowledge that, feel it, be like, dang, that is horrific. That way you know how important this is, how dangerous the precedents are, and how important the fight is. A hundred percent. I think even even just like the the mere fact that we're complaining about gas prices kind of speaks to the privilege of not being of not being frontline or even close to frontline. Because uh, 
what's happening in Ukraine, uh, I, I heard a, a refugee say that a refugee that made it to Poland can hear still hear bombs going off, and it scares them. So 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 it's certainly not only affecting Ukraine, but uh, yeah, the the fact that we can uh, and and I'm I, I do it too. Like like the gas prices need to come down. Like like it is what it is. You know what I'm saying the gas prices need to come down, but the mere fact that we're able to sit here and complain about gas prices kind of speaks to how fortunate we are to be kind of removed from it. And America yeah. specifically hasn't had a war on U.S. soil in a long, long time. And uh, hopefully it'll be a, a long, long <laughs> time before we get one because I don't necessarily courtesy that. Um, I don't courtesy a third world war either. So I was very fortunate that I was born after the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was part of the war. He um, he served in the police uh, force um, and he was responsible for uh, identifying like the Viet Cong, the communists that uh, infiltrated into South Vietnam. Um, after the war ended, um, he was incarcerated and was put in re-education camp for like six years. So it's like jail and they just, you know, torture and make you do all these things. And I have friends um, and other people that I know that suffer uh, from, from the war, that lost family members in the war. Um, I, I read somewhere it wiped out like almost like a full generation of men in Vietnam. And um, and then after the war comes another set of horror where people were fleeing. And back then they didn't have AIDS and all these, you know, mm-hmm. support. They were stacking on to these tiny little fishing boats to go out into the open sea and just pray and hope that they would get picked up by someone to save them or going to the neighbor country or and and they risk dying and everything just to escape you know that hope that you were talking about they rather put their hope in the sea than to stay in a regime that would control and take away all hope that they would have I remind myself of how privileged I am to not have to live through it. I'm always humbled by the people around me that have lived through it. And it's like PTSD for a lot of Vietnamese right now because when they see the image on screen, it reminds them of the image that they have lived through. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And I second everything you just said. Um, if you're listening and you are privileged enough to not know what it's like to uh, go through what they're going through or to be a descendant of someone that went through what they what they uh, what they're going through, uh, I urge you to stay informed. If you have the capability of fighting, even if that means just spreading awareness, then then do that. Do that, uh, regardless of how little, regardless of how little your uh, your contribution is if you can make a contribution, then you should make it be the type of person that you would want people to be to you. 
Yeah, I keep coming back to just wanting, you know, people. And it's actually, to, to your point earlier, you know, how, um, why are we treating this, this war different from other war? And how we think of um, Westerner refugees different from people of colors as refugees or immigrants. Um, I ask that, like, if we can all be open-minded mm -hmm. and and welcome, have a curious mind, and ask pe for people's story. If you want to know more, talk to someone. Mm -hmm. You know, ask for their experience. I I have tenants that are Somalians that have lived through incredible war crimes. Mm -hmm. Like, it's sad. You know, go to the International Institute. You can talk to anyone. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, Ukrainians that are going through this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people here in St. Louis that are refugees, mm -hmm. that are immigrants. Get to know them. Open your heart, your hand. Maybe give them, you know, like they all. So I also a shout out to, you know, the International Institute. There's a lot of stuff going on right now, too, where they're doing a lot of work to to support all these new immigrants uh, to resettle here in St. Louis. So check them out and see how you can help out, too. Before we close out, are there any other uh, refugee or immigrant resources that you would like to highlight? Let me look into that. I don't have it, but all I know is like the International Institute is the the one that really without them, we we wouldn't be able to be here today. Um, they helped my parents get that first job, taught them how to speak English. You know, they are the reason why a lot of immigrants have continued to thrive here in St. Louis. Uh, everyone under the sound of my voice, I want to thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Stitchcast Studio. I'm your host, Brandon Lewis. I am accompanied by B. Thanks for having me. And we out. Thank you for listening. We want to give a very special shout out to the Stitchcast Studio sponsors. Story Stitches is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Lewis Prize for Music's 2021 Accelerator Award. Additional support for Stitchcast Studio and Story Stitches Youth Programs was provided by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund, City of St. Louis Youth at Risk Crime Prevention Grant of 2021, Lust Corporations, The Charity Pot, and March for Our Lives Aid and Allowance. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches.